Episode 24, and this is episode 6 of season 2, and this is an incredibly exciting episode for me, some high quality content, and the reason it's such high quality is because of the guest that I have today, the gifted guru, and we are here in this discussion that you're about to listen to, we discussed the book David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I had actually having the conversation, all ideas and books and links are in the show notes if you want to follow up with anything that we've talked and shared about. We look forward to your comments and feedbacks of what you agreed and disagreed with. And more importantly, we hope that it gives you some food for thought to get you thinking about your own ideas. So without further ado, please take a listen. This is a longer podcast, but it's well worth every single minute that you have. And if you like it, please like it. Please leave a review on iTunes so it moves up the rankings. It would be great if we could get noticed by Malcolm Gladwell so we could get his thoughts on what we think about his own writing. Thank you, and let's kick it right into the show, guys. Hello, everyone. This is Coffee Chug. Coffee for the Brain. This is Aaron Maurer, and I have a repeat guest from one of the more popular podcast episodes that we had in uh, season one last year. Um, and so, just in case people don't know who she is, Lisa, I'm going to go ahead um, and let you introduce yourself, and then we'll talk about uh, what our topic is going to be for today. Okay, great. Thanks, Aaron. Um, I am Lisa Van Gammert. I am the Youth and Education Ambassador for American Mensa, which is the High IQ Society, and I am a gifted education person. I have an internet persona of the Gifted Guru, which is my website and my Twitter handle, and I speak at conferences and write about gifted stuff and talk to cool people like Aaron. So I'm really <laughs> happy to be here. Awesome, and I'm so glad this finally worked out, and for those that will be listening to the podcast, I will have all her info in the show notes. Uh, she's got some amazing things. I, I, her newsletter and everything that she has going on her website is, is just phenomenal. Uh, whether you are involved in the, the gifted world and, and Mensa or not, there's, there's tools and trip, tricks and tips and all that great stuff that I think can, can apply um, to anyone who's just looking to um, better themselves as an educator or a parent uh, in this world of a lot of noise and trying to find that good content, and she's definitely a, a place to go. Um, but what we want to do today is uh, something that we have been talking about quite a bit behind the scenes um, for quite some time, and we finally made it, made it work. And we want to have a chat 
about the book David and Goliath by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And this is a book that was published uh, last year in 2013. And this book has a lot of very interesting information. Anything that Malcolm Gladwell writes really has a lot of high-quality information. And I'll put all the links to notes if you haven't heard of this book. It's definitely a book worth reading uh, because I think that he shares a lot of things that either you'll, you'll at least in my mind, I was nodding my head in agreement, and then there was times I was shaking my head going, no, I, I don't like this either. And to me, that's always a sign of a good book. Um, and so maybe we can start out, uh, Lisa, I'll kind of put you on the spot here, um, and maybe we'll start with just kind of like your general thoughts about the book, and then we can get into some of the particulars, because there's a lot of different topics that are kind of woven in this book here. Yeah, there are. Um, well, I'll just start by saying that I I am a Malcolm Gladwellite. I love everything he does, TED Talk books, his articles, everything he does I love. Um, that said, I do think that David and Goliath is not the strongest of the things he's done. And so I don't want anybody to think that I'm just unreasonable in my praise of him. I do really like the overarching idea, at least the idea that I took away from it, which is that our whole understanding of what it means to be the underdog and how we often see that as negativity is a misplaced idea and needs to be looked at again. And the other thing that I really took away from this book was the story behind the title, which was the original David and Goliath story in the Bible, and the extra information he brought to that and really made you see that story from a different point, to me was kind of a metaphor for virtually everything else, that behind every story there's a backstory, and that you can't really understand that story unless you understand the context of the backstory, and there's probably tons of stuff in my life that I totally misunderstand because I don't know the backstory. Absolutely, and I, I would agree. I think that that opening story, one of the, my first notes that I jotted down um, and I highlighted back when I, I read it when it first came out and also uh, when I was preparing for today was I loved that story of David and Goliath. It Almost the way that he tells it is my favorite version just for exactly what you said, that there's this whole other slant. And it gets me thinking in the bigger context of stuff of I view myself as not only like a parent but also an educator how easy like you like you said that that negativity where you have that slanted vision of, of your your perception not saying that's right or wrong but to understand that there is this other option out there that's important that that we make sure we take a look at and understand that story um, before you kinda come to this consensus of this is right and this is wrong um, which I, which I think is, is really good because in that story, obviously, the way he, he shares it, um, to me, it, it just came alive. And I don't know, but that story just made so much more sense to me. Um, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm older and I, don't, I hate, hate to say wiser because I don't know if that's necessarily true. But especially with a lot of things that I, that I find myself kind of dealing with now as a parent, I'm going, okay, maybe I need to understand the other story before I jump to a conclusion about what I really believe. Um, and I thought that that story really stood out and kind of re-emphasized that, that especially there's there's things that we glamorize and think are, are the best, and it makes you stop and pause and go, is it? 
or is it maybe this this other underdog concept or idea that we don't emphasize as much? But maybe that's more important. But we just have been, you know, kind of fallen prey to the the media or the buzz or way things have always been. I agree with you. It made me think about something that um, my husband shared with me when I was talking with him about the book, and he said, like the phrase "low man on the totem pole," we always think of as meaning like if you're the low man on the totem pole, then you're disrespected. But it turns out that's the opposite of what's true. The person represented on the lowest part of the totem pole was the most powerful person in the tribe. So we have all of these misconceptions swirling around. Yeah, absolutely. And what, if we can get into one of the topics. There's, there's, there's one topic in here that really stuck with me, and it's, all, it's almost perfect timing that actually this, our, our discussion on this book has been delayed because in the last week or so, I feel like I've been... Um, keep getting hit um, by the same topic, which in, in one of the chapters he talks about class size um, and the research on class size. And it it, it was interesting. And the, I can't do it probably justice. You're going to have to read the book to see it all. But basically, um, the feeling I got with the gist was that, that uh, oh, there's a nice warning bell there. Uh, basically, the, the, the gist that I received from it was that class size really doesn't have an effect on, on academic achievement. Um, and they show this huge study where they studied all these countries and schools. Um, and he does, to his sake, not to, because there's some things I disagree with, he does look at it and also do the flip side of that class sizes could be too small. But uh, I was sharing that with my wife, and I thought she was going to jump to the roof. Um, because she's one dealing with large class size, and her argument all year has been, if I just had five less kids, I could get them to the, the place that I want them to be. But yet his research and the thing that he shares in here is the opposite, that it wouldn't have any effect on achievement. And so I'm interested in, in your thoughts on this, um, just from your angle of where you study, and I know that you do a lot of research and you do a lot of reading on a lot of things, um, of what your feelings were on that on that piece. Well, I think that there are a couple of different um, parts in there to tease out. So in a classroom, what leads to student success has a lot of moving parts. And I think that one of the dangers of educational research is that researchers try to focus on one aspect of the school, correlate it to student achievement and then say, yes, that made, this made a difference or no, it didn't, but there's no way that you can really isolate that kind of thing. So I do think it was a little bit of an oversimplification to say, he says class size doesn't matter. There was a certain point at which it did, right? Like mm -hmm. there, there seems to be like a sweet spot and it's not too small and it's not too large and I think that we see that in a lot of things related to education that there are these Goldilocks environments that where the the classroom is not too big and not too small and not discouragingly challenging and not mind-numbingly boring that that there's kind of this optimal space on the racket the sweet spot and I think that's true now anybody knows that you don't you don't need to do quantitative research you do not need to do case studies to know that any teacher with a too large classroom is going to have problems and the difficulty is is that those problems don't always translate into lower student achievement which is all that the research was looking for 
right. it can translate into other effects like teacher burnout. And so you can have a, a large class size and you have an effective teacher and so the students are still achieving but at what cost? And right. so I think that is the part that makes it really difficult. Yeah, and he has, he may, makes reference in there too that um, there's that idea that if if we have less of a workload, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, so I'm not quoting him by any means, that the teachers could view it as well. I don't have to to work as hard. And he gives the example that that if a doctor knows on a Friday he only has to see 20 patients as opposed to 25. Uh, does he put in the extra time where he would still leave work at 7.30 or does he try to get out at 6.30 so he can have dinner with his wife? I get that, that, that argument. Yeah. But I also look at it going, so then you're automatically thinking that every teacher is just going to take the short end of the road. And I think there's another factor that I, I think a majority of teachers wouldn't do that. I think with you talking about those other factors of the burnout and, and the headache, you, sometimes it, when you get a class, and like our schedules in our building, there each teacher has a has a class for some reason. The way the schedule is built, that it's just much smaller than their other classes of 25 to 32 kids, and they get so much further ahead. It's almost like there's that bell again. It's almost like it refreshes them because they feel like they can see the 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 change in in, in our case a 42 minute period where your larger classes you feel like sometimes you just can't get them going you know um, whether the make of the kids whether they're great kids or not when you have that many there's so many other pieces to to, to the puzzle there um, and it, I don't know it just seems like well that at the conference that was brought up a lot um, and then obviously talking with my wife and other teachers this year we have a lot of class sizes and it's and it, it just really struck a chord and I'd be interested as more teachers read that what their general thoughts would be I mean I, I would kind of get a sense but uh, it's just one that, that really always be seems to be a central issue. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that Gladwell has never spent quality time in a classroom with 38 students, um, which I have done. <laughs> I've had 38 freshmen in a world geography class, and you, your object changes from student performance to survival, and that is never good. Now... You will still teach, teach effectively, but I think it, that Gladwell's argument proves nothing more powerfully than it proves that statistics and research are a snapshot, not an MRI, of what's going on in a classroom. I love that. Yeah, okay. and I think uh, you know one of the things that, that I think when you talk, talk class size, I think this is where, where a lot of schools are at is I think we're starting to see a shift in education where I think people are starting to recognize that, that, that the survey courses are not the answer, where you try to get through a ton of content and you don't really dive deep in, into any one of those elements because you don't have time. You know, you have to go from ancient Egypt and all of a sudden get to, you know, the American Revolution and you have 182 class days to get that done. Um, where, you know, the class, side, if, you, if you're having huge classes, it's hard to dive deep with those kids and allow you to help kids reach that, that deeper understanding. And part of that's letting go, and I think that's where where I think that shift is, is slowly starting to change, and hopefully the, the class size stuff will maybe, maybe that that's why it's becoming 
a hot topic in at least at least in our area where we, we see a lot of schools, our school in particular and other districts, really going, is that the answer to try to cram as much content as possible or do we take some off our plate so we can really explore and really get the kids to the point of, of application, doing something with content as opposed to just here's content and let's move on. Well, if all you do is let kids get the here's the content, let's move on, and they don't use it, one thing we know for sure is that they will never remember it. And so it depends on what is our goal. And is our goal to have them pass an end of course exam and prove that they put this knowledge and comprehension in their short term memory? Or is our goal to give them tools for their future? So I don't think that those are necessarily mutually exclusive in the sense that obviously we don't need kids doing high level thinking about something about which they know nothing, right? Like if you want to see somebody do high level analysis about something about which they are ignorant, you just can go watch C-SPAN because politicians are geniuses at this, right? But right. That, and that's not what we're looking for in a classroom. We don't want kids trying to do theoretical mathematics who don't know their times tables. But at the same time, if we don't teach the times tables, then we're going to have crickets when we try to do analysis. And you know who writes a great book we should talk about again later is Dan Willingham. Dan Willingham, who's a social psychologist at the University of Virginia um, and who basically single-handedly blew Gardner's multiple intelligence theory out of the water. But whether, he, whether Willingham would agree with that characteristic or not, I'm not sure, but I credit him with it. But he wrote a great book on why kids don't like school. And in his book on why kids don't like school, one of the things he talks about is the way that the mental processes in the brain work and how you can't tease out fundamental knowledge from the analytical process, that they're intricately connected. It's like you can't tease a spider out of its web. You, you lose what's going on here and the purpose of the web. So I love that. And I think... I don't think I think Gladwell sometimes says stuff to be a little bit inflammatory just to get you thinking. Um, right. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it on that one because I'm determined to like him. <laughs> and I think you know I think at the end of the day, by making those statements, if it gets people talking and it gets people having those conversations, then I really believe that the author has done its job. I mean, I'm sure. I mean. He's probably a hundredfold more intelligent than me. He understands the ramifications of what he was writing, and um, you know. And I think if you can spur those conversations and people to have those these dialogues like we're having, you're onto something, and and you've hit a spot that's going to propel people to want to hopefully enact change and, and and work on finding solutions, which I think is what it's all about. Anytime you create content, is not just to make content, but to stir something to motivate people to either agree or disagree with your work. And in this case, in, what, in this book here, he's, he's obviously, he's done that with me anyways, because I know that I've been fired up and I've got, I know we won't, you won't be able to see this in, in the podcast, but you can see it. Uh, you can see I've got tabs and highlights and it just, I read it every time I read it, I'm like, ah! So it's, uh, <laughs> it's good. So um, maybe we'll, we'll flip this here and because, and uh, what was something that, that really stood out to you in the book, being that you are a, a huge Gladwell fan, or maybe something that, uh, that, that bothered you that you thought you agreed or disagreed with? Well, really, the, the class size one was the one where I just wanted to climb through the book and say, you can't say that without at least 
going to dinner with me and letting me, you know, wave my smaller class size flag. Um, although I, I would say just back on class size for a moment. Yeah, yeah. One thing I think that his idea gives us is to look at the people who say that homeschooling is going to be definitionally better because the class size is smaller, I think his argument actually privileges public education. And that's not an argument he makes, but I think it's an argument that could be made out of that research. And um, I homeschooled my children for a few years when we lived in Germany. And when I was reading his book, and that section on it, on small class size, I could see some of the dynamic that he was talking about that's a negative side of small class size. I saw that even in my experience with my own personal children. So I think that's not a place he went, but I think it's a place you could go. Yeah, and I like. I think I, I, have, a, I have a place here highlighted, actually, surprised after what I just showed you, um, on that, that really stood out to me. And I think it, it raises a really interesting conversation piece in terms of the smaller class size. And he says here... Uh, one answer that the school isn't thinking of its students, it's thinking of the parents of the students. And then he goes on and says, who see things like golf courses and Steinway pianos and small classes as evidence that their $50,000 is well spent, talking about the, the kind of higher level schools you pay a lot of money for, for that really, really small class size. Um, and I think I like that homeschool piece too. It's, you know, and, I, and I think it leads to, to you know, the, the answer of education, which is why, why it's, it's always a... A passionate thing for people because one, your your own kids are involved. Or as educator, I think to be an educator, you have to be passionate about your job, and it's hard to separate your job from the daily life because you infuse everything into it. But it's you know that one size doesn't fit all. Uh, you know, yeah. homeschool does work well for some people, and these schools you pay a hundred thousand, fifty thousand a year does probably work for some of those kids. Just like public school works for some, but it doesn't work for everyone. And so it's you strive to to meet their needs. But at the end of the day. We're all unique. We all have different strengths and abilities and things that we work well and not work well with. And so you kind of have to find your fit. Uh, but depending on where you live, that's not always an opportunity for you unless you're willing to uproot and move, which isn't always um, an option for, for families either. Right. Well, I thought that one of the more compelling ideas in Gladwell's book was that the, the way that he approached the idea of strengths and weaknesses and we've heard a lot about strengths-based leadership, strengths-based personal development, but I loved the idea here that not only will you not get better by focusing on your strengths as opposed to your weaknesses, which is an idea that's kind of been floating around business management for a while, no. but his idea that your strengths and your weaknesses are actually two sides of the exact same coin. And that if you try really hard to get rid of your weaknesses, you might find yourself having eviscerated your strength. And he uses the dyslexics uh, in his book as examples of this, that, that dyslexia definitely perceived as being such a handicap with regard to, handicap in the small h, right? But a handicap with regard to school instruction, but he talked about, all of the people who've been successful, not in spite of their dyslexia, but rather because of it, and that maybe we need to rethink what it is, and maybe maybe the idea of identifying this as special education in the sense of being um, a detriment to being able to be educated in the normal school system is the totally wrong way of looking at it. And I loved that idea. I thought it was extraordinarily powerful 
and in, from my perspective, because it also had implications for the gifted who also can't approach the normal curriculum without adjustment. Yeah, and I, I just made a note that I need to find, I just read an article uh, just last week, and I've got a bookmark somewhere in my Evernote, um, where it talked about the percentage of successful entrepreneurs in the last uh, five years or, or ten years, I can't remember the, the date on that, um, and the high number that are actually dyslexic. Uh, but yeah. didn't go on, you know, and did not do college, and not, not that if you're dyslexic you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, but there's this high correlation of those that are making it at a young age and becoming multimillionaires in their 20s um, suffered from, I shouldn't say suffered, that, that's the wrong word, but maybe suffered in, in the context of, of a public school um, in terms of, of the battles that they had to, to work through. Um, that that were dyslexic and, I, and it's, it's it's really interesting. I need to find that and I'll so I, I can track that down and share that in the show notes because it does correlate. I think with exactly wh what you're saying there. Yeah, I loved it. Well, I thought so. I mentioned I'm a Gladwellite, so I would say that his. I thought that some of the ideas in David and Goliath fit very well with some of the ideas in his other books. And just like the whole story of David and Goliath that you couldn't really understand unless you had the backstory of it, I think a lot of what's going on in David and Goliath is more, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but makes more sense when you see it in the broader framework of all of his work. So like if you've read The Tipping Point and you understand his belief that there's a point at which it all falls forward, you know, that you can build slowly, 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 and then there's this one point, I think, <clears throat> where everything changes. I think that that idea can easily be translated to David and Goliath, where you can have this weakness, 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 and then there's this one point where the stars kind of align, and all of a sudden that weakness becomes a strength. And I think that that piece is where David and Goliath really meets educational practice. How can we help students develop their skills and abilities? How can we teach them to accept their weaknesses to the and recognize them for what they are and the strengths that lie hidden within them to the extent that then there's this tipping point that pushes them over from having them see themselves as victims of their weaknesses and rather take ownership and charge of them in a powerful and empowering way. I like that and it gets me thinking and I'm always on the fence on this topic too, but it goes into that keep working kind of through your weaknesses. Um, you know, is that whole idea of, of grit or perseverance. And I know that it became really popular, and then a lot of people now all of a sudden are kind of banging it up a little bit. And, and not here to really debate that debate that either way, because I think there's merit in, in, in every idea. But you're going to need some grit in order to kind of stick with that weakness, because we are in a society that any weakness is, is viewed as bad and it, you know it, it's not okay to open up and and say I have this weakness it's you know it's, it, it, with kids it's not cool you know and as, as adults we, we view it as a um, a slant to who we are like I think about it you know for working with teachers in my job now it's the very same thing is to get work with them to open up here's what I need help on and it's not a oh you're a bad teacher because you need help on it but let's work on this like this is something that that can be improved and it can be helped and we need to not, not knock it down but celebrate it because like you said it's, it's, it's two sides of the coin so if you're having this weakness you're obviously really strong somewhere else and so we need to find that, that, that happy medium. Um, I think the other part of that is that if I work on my weakness really hard and try to get rid of it I may lose strength 
So, for instance, I've had to have this conversation with bosses. You know, somebody will say to me, you know, Lisa, you just you just come across as a little too forceful. You're just a little too strident. You know, you just got a little too much. You're just too strongly married to your ideas and a little too forceful, a little too type A. And I have tried many, many times to kind of tone that part of my personality down. But what I find happens is as I lose that and I, as I become more kind of Pollyanna, go with the flow Lisa, then Lisa gets a lot less done. And, right. and, and a lot fewer people care what Lisa has to say because then Lisa just becomes one more voice in a noisy world. And so I think we have to be very careful about even qualifying or qualifying something as a weakness because weakness, like beauty, is all in the eye of the beholder. And I'll give you an example that actually just popped into my mind about this. I, um, I was talking with a friend of mine about the idea of, um, that, of the way that beauty is perceived in our society. And I mentioned kind of flippantly that, that, oh, you know, wouldn't it be fabulous if we could just like wave a wand and lose 30 pounds instantly. And she said, well, you, women have to be very careful when they decide to lose a lot of weight because they might diet away their husband's favorite part of them. Oh. And, and I thought, wow, that's such a powerful idea. And so it turns out that the way that, that women perceive their bodies is very, very different from the way their, their partners perceive their bodies. And that, that women can be spending all kinds of mental and physical, and I think men too, especially in today's modern world where there are becoming more and more strong ideas of masculine beauty as well, but that you can be spending all kinds of mental and physical energy trying to change yourself in a way in, in order to please someone else that would actually not please them. Mm. And I think that you can make that inference from Gladwell's book. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Right? You could get rid of a weakness and you could lose something really important to you. That's the that's a great point. I, that's the that's really strong. It almost has me uh, a little speechless there because I, I, I just I find myself going, yes, absolutely. You know, and I, I look at it, uh, you know, and I've shared this in my presentations, and, and I'll share it here. And, and it's like I'm working with with, with my son right now. He's he's in fourth grade, and they have this new curriculum, which I'm, I'm personally not a fan of, and maybe that's not professional for me to say. But it's I have some questions on 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 its goals, which I think is is only fair as an educator. And a parent doesn't mean that I that and maybe I don't know the whole story, which is the other piece, which goes back to this book that there's maybe I need to understand the curriculum more myself, and so where I'm at right now may not be where I'm at in a month from now. But he's really struggling trying to fit the mold of this new of this new curriculum. I mean, he's been ingrained in in, in a different way of learning and modality um, from kindergarten all the way up, and now there's this new shift, and it, and it's and it's not how his brain functions. And we, we've had a lot of frustrations, not just in an academic sense, but in a family sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's causing ripples in, in layers that's, that's much more deep than simply completing a math worksheet. But, but what it got me thinking is, you know, he's able to, to solve the problems. He's not a genius. He's just a good, average, hardworking kid. 
but he can't always solve it the way they want him to solve it, and therefore it's wrong. And it gets me thinking about, you know, that's not a weakness. That's just the way his brain operates. And and how do we continue to find ways where, where that's okay? If he can put the proof to the pudding to show that he is able to articulate how he has his answer, you know, how does it really matter how it works? You know, and it's the same thing with, with personalities. You know, he... he it takes him a little bit. He's always about five minutes behind everything, you know. And but that's not the system. When the bell rings. You got to move on. And it's the end of the school day. You need to leave. You need to walk to school at this time, you know. And it's trying to find, find that mold. And and I think that that's a very you know. And he's starting to view it all as a weakness. And I think you know it's. I think at, at the conference I was just at Adam Bell, uh, or no, excuse me, it was Peter Reynolds said it best. He said it's it's so easy to destroy a dream, you know. And that whole idea of weakness. You know, permeates everywhere, and I really like what you said. It's, it's weakness and strength is, is, is all perception, and I think that that's so powerful um, because really, in my mind, they don't really ever really truly exist. There are these things that we have created in our minds and how we view ourselves and view other people, um, and so it's not something that you can say yes, this is this is a weakness because maybe it's not. Someone else could view that as a gift or a strength, which is. Uh, kind of a, a really weird abstract idea. Really, weakness and strength is just the way that we define how far off of the societal contemporary norm are you in any one given domain, right? right? Yeah. In a way that society perceives as either above or below that norm. Now, lest somebody hearing this think that we don't get it, um, I just want to clarify that we both, you and I both get it, that a math teacher might want a student to be able to perform a task a certain way because while a, a student's unique way of doing it might work at this level, it might not work when you apply the same idea at higher level math. We get that. We know that. That's not what we're talking about. We're right. talking about the idea of sending a message to a kid that you're simply not okay because your brain doesn't think this way. And the idea that this is the right way, therefore every other way is the wrong way, as opposed to, well, I know your natural inclination is to do it this way. For our purposes, we're going to do it this other way. And I know that's not the most comfortable for you. It's like writing with your left hand instead of your right, if you're right-hand dominant. But I think that all too often, in, in and it's not just school, right? It's everywhere. If you perceive something differently from the way that everybody perceives it, or everybody perceives it, then you're perceived as wrong. And I, as you were talking about your son, I was thinking about that idea that like you, you can force him to do it the way that the school wants, and you can force him to, to move more quickly than he's really comfortable with, and what he will lose will be um, his imagination. It will be an imaginectomy. That's mm -hmm. what will go. Yeah, so I just had that conversation with my wife last night, and I said, you know, I feel he, he's starting to lose that wonder that to to say, which goes against the grain of the conversation, that it, it has been his strength. He just has this this curious flow about the world, and I feel like he's starting to lose that. And and the piggyback of what you said, I'm not finger pointing teachers, I'm not finger pointing the school. It's 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 just it's it's a grander idea, not just a, a curriculum or, or a textbook. That that's not the point of that, which is which I'm glad you, you clarified that. But it's just that, that notion of this is right, this is wrong. Where last year 
you know, there was a different right way to do the math because we had a different uh, curriculum that they were using. So by no way am, am I am I calling anybody out, but it's it's just that there's that mindset again of, you know, this is it. This is what we, you know, um, this is the way. This this is the way to do this. Well, no, it's it's one way, and uh, you know, and I don't know how you manage that when you have all those kids and this is all new. You, it's, it's survival mode, and I've told so many people you couldn't pay me enough money to be. Uh, one of our elementary teachers this year because they've got so much on their plates. But you know, but there, but there's that thing. He's he, he's losing his voice and, and passion through that because he's viewing things as 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 wrong or weakness when it's not. And you know, and I'm sure every kid has that. I'm sure. I think back to my when I was in the classroom for for ten years. I am sure I said something that completely deflated a balloon, you know, of 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 creation by some kid because I. I had a critique or I said something just in a way that was just enough to devastate that thought. And, you know, we're not perfect, you know, but it's, it's one of those things I think we have to be always aware of, of, of not losing that, that balance of, of letting someone go with it. You can't have complete freedom, uh, but that strength and weakness piece is, is so strong and uh, it just makes you really kind of double, double check what you say before you say it because the smallest little thing can completely throw someone to a whole new path. Um, and it's the good and the bad, you know. It's the same thing on the flip side. If we want to look at a positive lens, a simple compliment can really just take someone to that next le level to just, i got to keep going with this. I have something. Somebody said good job, um, and now I feel good. I'm going to dig at this like I've never dug at it before because someone recognized it, you know. So there, there, there's that, that positive side to it as well, um, which is a little bit off the path of strength and weakness, but I think it all kind of kind of fits into that, that, that grander scheme of things. No, I do think it fits in because um, one of the words that Gladwell uses in the subtitle of the book is misfit. And I think that a lot, I think that your comments kind of fit with that. And I was thinking about that that's one of the strengths of Gladwell's book is this idea that we often see in movies and television shows where the misfit is successful when they completely change themselves in order to fit in with the norm. And I'll just use a really old example, which is the movie Grease, where at the end, right, the Sandy character changes into a slut, and the John Travolta character changes into a, you know, lettered, like, sweater prep, you know, drifters right. kind of thing, right? And it's like they both change to try to meet the needs of each other. And, and I think that that's one of the biggest things that is the powerful message that Gladwell has that, that isn't necessarily the most overt message in the book, but I think it's a powerful one, which is that, that this idea that every misfit just longs to have an extreme makeover so that they can be, um, that they can fit in is not only wrong in the sense that it's not true, but wrong in the sense that it shouldn't be a goal. Like, a goal should not be to go out and take all the nerds and make them popular and to take all of the every everybody who is dyslexic and make them avid readers and to take you know what I mean? Like I think that, that Gladwell's underlying message and I don't even know if he would agree with it, but I think that one of the underlying messages of his book is whatever makes you there it is. whatever makes you different whatever makes you different is not something to be discarded and that it doesn't make you bad and it doesn't it isn't even something that you should necessarily 
try to change. Like, if, if, if this is what fits you, let it fit you. And just fly that flag. Right, right. You know, if you look at that, look at the subtitle, you, you made reference to that, the underdogs, misfits, and the art of battling giants. And that's so true. And it, it'd be, it would be an interesting concept of, like, I look at it, underdogs and misfits, you know, and, and the giant being this, this norm. And I don't, I don't know how, what other word to put in there of, of what we should be, um, you know. And I think that we're all here. We all and we all are underdogs and misfits in, 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 our, in our own powerful way, you know. And this giant is this culture or self-permeated concept of what it means to be whatever it is, you know, American or uh, a middle schooler or an athlete, whatever it might be, you know, and how do you uh, embrace the, 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 there's there's positives to those bigger ideas, but then also at the same time celebrating that you bring your own flavor to it. Um, I was just talking with, with kids for a podcast yesterday, and it was like they're, they're worried they didn't want to talk. Um, you know, there are some kids that that school is not their thing, um, to put it that way. And it's like you know you have your own tone, you have your own flavor, you have your own unique way of speaking, and that's what has to come out. You know, and it doesn't matter. You know, if you have a little bit of a lisp like I have, or I stuttered my whole life, you can still sell a powerful message because that's what—that's you. That's who who you are. That's what you bring to the table. Um, you know, and I think that's something that we have to constantly strive for because I think it, it's tough for kids, and that's part of you know it, it's taken me over 30 years to get to that point where I'm to the point where I don't care if people don't like my approach. It doesn't mean that I'm trying to create enemies, but it's it's who I am. And I'm not here to make everyone happy. I'm here to share, here's where I'm at in my point. Here's, here's my philosophy on life and education or whatever it might be that I'm spewing about. And you can agree or disagree, and it's okay. And if you disagree, I hope that you, I hope that you celebrate your misfit underdog and share that because maybe, maybe I'll, I will realize that I, that I do need to think differently. You know? And I think that's the beauty of it is more people like you said, waving that flag because everybody can gain from that. Yeah. Well, I think that it's important to mention Gladwell's other books. I mean, I, I mentioned um, Tipping Point. Um, Blink, I think, has a, me a, a tangential message here connected to David and Goliath, which is his book on privileging intuition, which I think has a powerful message for educators because contemporary curriculum definitely does not privilege intuition, right. definitely forcing kids to constantly explain their answers. And his description of verbal overshadowing and the, and the powerful thing against kids that that is, um, I can't say enough about it, every educator should read Blink. And then obviously outliers about what really makes people successful. and. I think that one has a lot of power. He, he writes, even though he's basically translating science for the masses, I think all of his books have powerful messages for educators about rethinking and reframing what pedagogy looks like right now, aligning it with what do we know about neuropsychology right now, and how much of what we're doing in schools every day is just out of alignment, out of alignment with with what we know about the way that the brain works and the way that kids should be allowed to think. And so I definitely would say that any any educator needs to read 
that whole Gladwell canon in order to flesh out some of the ideas that they have about what makes their class tick. Absolutely, and I think that's, uh, you know, we, we, we've started a book club, and so it, it's definitely something that I think we're heading in. It, it was a book, his books have been suggested for uh for some staff reading, which I think would, would lead to, in many ways, some really powerful PD for educators. You know, if we could read something that isn't, here's how to, here's how to teach a read aloud, or here's how to do a think aloud, um, but more of here's this idea, and does it challenge your thinking, and and how do we start to infuse that in the classroom? Uh, because I think that the teacher voice needs to become more powerful than where it's currently at. And if enough teachers start to embrace what's needed, we know we're, we're, we're in the trenches um, every day. These are the teachers working with kids. And if they start to put their foot down and say, this is the way it needs to go, I don't know how anybody could, could stop that power out. I mean, we're one of the, I mean, I think it's in David Glad, we're one of the biggest, you know, employment categories in, in America. We have more people working as teachers than about any other uh, division of, of labor, or we're, at least we're up there in the top five. And if we were, you know, the, of course the glitch would be how do you get them to come to a collective whole, but within your schools and districts and states saying this is what's needed, you don't stop that, you know. And I think in some ways, not that it's it's, it's us versus them in, in education, but, you know, there's people making decisions that aren't in the classroom every day. And, you know, they're looking at stuff from a – a top-down preview, looking at everything, which is what they have to do, because you do have to make decisions that, that affect everyone, but when you're at the ground level, it does look much different. And I always think, like, man, if we just were to raise our voices, you know, as, as at the conference out there the last two days, I mean, everybody felt the same message of what was needed to, to make education great. And then you go back to your school, and I guarantee half of them probably already feel defeated by the the day-to-day -day routines and the red tape that, you know, they hear these great ideas, well, can I do this? No, you can't do it. Oh, you know, and you just feel devastated. So it's, people know it's now, I guess, the same challenge we have with kids is go do something with it. And how do you do that? You know, I guess that's the, the ultimate uh, million-dollar question. Well, I think one of the answers to that question is it found in physics, right? So imagine that a bunch of teachers go to an ice skating rink and we're all holding hands skating along. When you get to the end of the rink and you need to turn, that person in the pivot position can turn the whole line of everybody, right? Like I stand still and I pull everyone around with that momentum. And so I think educators who are passionate about making changes in the way that schools look at um, education, the way that schools look at pedagogy, the way that schools look at teachers, need to put themselves in pivot positions. So don't expect that you're in the middle of the line, you're going to do anything but whine. You've got to be in a pivot position. And I think you're a perfect example of that. You know, you've, you've put yourself in a pivot position through creating the podcast, by speaking at conferences, by publishing. That's a pivot position. And so any educator can do it. The, right. the beauty of 2.0, right? Anybody can put themselves in a pivot position. So stop standing in the middle of the line whining and put yourself in a pivot position and start to turn. Absolutely. You know, so I, I, lo I love that pivot position. I think that's something I'm going to have to like, draw a picture of, I think, and uh, I like that. I think that's a – I think you've got your new tagline. You have the five-headed dragon. There you go. There's your, there's your new uh, amazing talk. There's your new amazing talk. I think you've got something right there. Uh, All right. 
So you know, we we've been talking for 45 minutes. We can maybe kind of kind of bring this up to a close. And so maybe we'll we'll bring it back to David and Goliath here. Um, so what would be uh, maybe some of your uh, I don't want to say closing remarks, but end things to bring it back to David and Goliath. Uh, it was something that we didn't leave out, or, or any other food for thought for people. Because I definitely think, like you said, you know, you suggested reading his other works, and this something that we, we definitely need to plug in there. But uh, what are your kind of final thoughts on 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 the book or things we've talked about here today? Well, I would say that on on David and Goliath, it's important for people when they approach it, to approach it like they do any of the other kind of similar books, like um, Mary Roach's stuff, um, is, is to look at it as not prescriptive, but rather one angle. And you can keep yourself from becoming too defensive if you do that. This is one perspective. And, and let it, allow it to challenge your thinking without making you defensive. And if you can do that yourself, then you empower yourself to teach your students to do that. And when you can empower students to challenge their thinking without becoming defensive, you give them a skill that will carry them anywhere they want to go. Because I think that's the biggest thing that holds people back, is that they are so uncomfortable having their ideas challenged that they let it back them into a defensive corner. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that Gladwell has to offer, is that he invites you to challenge your thinking without becoming defensive and reactionary. Yes, I love it. And I think, you know, if I, if I were to answer the own question I just posed to you, it would be the same exact thing. What I liked about this is it, the stories he presents. One, what I really like about his writing is you don't get the same example that you, I feel that I read in every other book about the world or mindset or change. I feel like you get the same 10, 15 examples once you start reading, um, and this kind of realm has become my, my fixation the last year and a half, and so, you know, I'm tired of reading about Steve Jobs, and I'm tired of reading about all these different types of, you know, um, people, and so all these stories in here, I mean, obviously, I've heard of David Goliath, but from his perspective, every story was new. The examples were these they were the outlier. They were these underdog stories that nobody knows about. At least I was like, oh, I've never heard about this. I mean, I was aware of, like, Nazis, but not the angle at which he was taking. So that was a fresh yeah. fresh of breath air because I'm like, here he is writing about it, and yet he didn't use the – I used the, the, the cliché example that I'm tired of reading about. Um, and so I think he kind of lives by his word. And just what you said, like, it gives me pause to think about where my stance is on, on certain things. We all have a stance. You know, and whether I, I nodded my head or, or shook my head, I it gave me it gets maybe stop and go. Okay, there could be another side of this story. You know, I, I, I maybe need to take look at it from a different angle. Um, and whatever I believe, if others don't believe it, that's also okay. And then on the on the flip side, from the from being respectful of people, to respect what other people think because that's also okay. You know, I think it's easy to be. It's okay if you don't agree with me. But I can't believe you don't agree with me. And you're wrong. And that, you know that's easy to do too. So on a personal, it's also good to say if someone doesn't like what I'm saying or I'm sharing, that's also okay. Um, and yeah. I know sometimes that, that's hard, especially when it's on topics that you're very passionate about. Um, and so that book is the book was a, was a nice subtle reminder to just be respected of other people's thoughts and opinions and, and all those things, which is you know the golden rule. But it, it's it's sometimes easy to get that skewed. Um, when you do get fired up about things that 
that Im impact you on a, a personal level. Have you read Atul Gawande's, um, I'll hold it up so you can see it, have you read Atul Gawande's The Checklist Manifesto? No, I have it in my, honestly, I, the funny thing is I have it in my Amazon cart, and it's sitting in there, oh. uh, I just haven't, I haven't purchased it. But that's what Buy I need. Buy it. I need yeah. to get it. Yeah. Well, I think it's a must-read for all educators, and I think if you're somebody who likes Gladwell, um, you would like uh, Gawande. He does kind of the same things with um, using examples that are a little bit different than the norm, but in interpreting them. And this particular book really um, is is powerful. So I want I didn't want to come to a book talk without without bringing you another recommendation. So take it, move it out of the cart and into the order. <laughs> I like it. I will definitely uh, get it get it, get it purchased. I was just reading um, the latest book by Shane Snow. Actually, I think I wrote about four blog posts all based on his stuff um, called uh, Smart Smart Hacks, Smart Cuts, um, Different Ways to Be Productive. And it was really a, a breath of fresh air, too, in terms of, the stories and examples that uh, he was writing about. I gotta make sure I say the the title of the book correctly. Smart cuts is what it is, and, I, and I'll put a link Smart in there. Cut. Yeah, um, really easy read, but it's just it was just a different take on things. Uh, the one that stood out to me was how young presidents become presidents compared to people who sit in the Senate or House of Representatives for so long, and you know how did they how did they jump through the chain of command without actually going to the chain of command. You know, what was it that, that they were able to do? And it just was an interesting take on, you know, what are those, those smart cuts that you can take in life to get where you want to be? But, you know, it doesn't mean that there's an easy path, but there's certain things that you can do to uh, stand out and, and move, move yourself ahead, which was had a lot of interesting uh, food for thought um, on there. So there's my uh, on-the-spot uh, book recommendation. I didn't even think about it. I have a recommendation. I'll for go buy it. So it was good. It was good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Lisa. I appreciate it. I think this is going to be good. I look forward to um, anyone who listens to this podcast, your questions, thoughts, um, what, if you've read the book, uh, what you um, thought about it, or maybe what you agreed or disagreed with us. And if you haven't read it, then I don't know what you're waiting for. You need to go out and get this book, and then you can come join in on the uh, conversation because we'd love to hear from you. Um, and so thanks again for taking time, uh, Lisa. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Aaron. I'll talk to you later. All right. All right, so there you have it, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope it gave you some good thoughts, some good ideas. Go out, share it, like it, leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you read this, uh, and listen to this podcast. It's very important that we continue to share and spread the messages. If I don't connect with Lisa and hear her ideas, then there's no way for me to empower my own thinking. And so by us sharing our thoughts, we hope you would share your thoughts, leave some comments, leave some feedback, whatever it might be. And I look forward to hearing what you have to say. And I hope that you go out, read his work, take a look at some of those things, and start to think about your own thinking and how we can begin to transform not only our day-to-day -day lives, but how we can impact education and students as well as ourselves. Thanks, everybody. I look forward to hearing from you. And as always, thank you so much, Lisa, for taking time to talk with me. It is always a pleasure.